This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. The most powerful wise, so-called wise interventions are the ones where we convey in word or deed those one of those three messages. You are seen. You matter. You matter. And, um, and you're not alone. Uh, I think those three, three messages are really core. How we convey them can vary quite a bit. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is so aligned with the myriad of topics we talk about on the show, and that is belonging with our esteemed guest, Jeffrey Cohen. Professor Cohen is professor of psychology and the James G. March Professor of Organizational Studies in Education and Business at Stanford University. His research examines processes that shape people's sense of belonging and self and implications for social problems. Professor Cohen studies the big and small threats to belonging and self-integrity that people encounter in school, work, and healthcare settings, and strategies to create more inclusive spaces for people from all walks of life. His new amazing book is on this very topic. It is called Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. We are looking forward to having an in-depth conversation about this today. He lives in Palo Alto, California. Professor Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan. It's a delight to be here with you. So many places to go. I'm starting with personal. Um, first off, tell us about your road to becoming a social psychologist, social mm. psychology, which I know from reading is, it just seems to be part of your lifeblood in terms of how you see the world and your meaning uh, and how you create meaning in your work. It really is. It's my mother's milk at this point. I've been mm. studying social psychology more than the time it took to raise me as a child. So it really is, as you say, in my blood. I just love the topic. I love the topic. And a lot of people do. It's all about these aspects of human behavior we're all interested in understanding that are on the news. 
ranging from obedience to conformity to polarization to mental health. Uh, so the it, the topics are great, and I also just love the approach. It's 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 about how the situations that we're in shape us, and most psychologists look at what is going on inside of your head as a as the causal culprit, the essences inside of people. What a social psychologist is interested in more is the water we swim in, our situations, and the situations that we create for one another and for ourselves. So I just found that topic to be really interested. I, I wanted to be a writer when I started out, and mm-hmm. uh, I was into fiction writing, and psychology resonated with me for many of the same reasons writing did. It's about people, change, and the, their tragic flaws and their abilities to overcome them. I found your, um, you, you are a storyteller, so even though you are a, a scientist and a researcher, it's not surprising now to hear that um, you're also love of writing because you really, you really, your book, while filled with research and theory, is a conversation for for all um, from my experience. And in these stories, you talk about two, um, in particular, personal experiences. Um, er, you know, earlier in life, and then as a new professor, where you experienced a crisis of belonging. So I was wondering if you can tell our listeners about those experiences, and did those fuel, you know, and then did those fuel this this passion for this topic? Yeah. Well, belonging, I, I'll take a step back, is something that we all care about. There's a lot of research now showing that it's such an important thing to have, this sense of connectedness, being part of a larger group. It is encoded into our DNA as as human beings. And a lot of the book is just about how important this need is and what we can do as parents, teachers, managers, et cetera, to to cultivate it day to day. Um, That, so that, that, that's the sort of topic that I am focused on in the book. Where did that interest come from? I think like so many things in our life, I, 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 I'd be curious what, what you think about this, Dr. Dan, but it, it was a kind of serendipitous confluence of a lot of different things. I mean, growing up, I, you know, like many of us, especially during the teenage years, I felt like an outsider, very much so. And, and that kind of makes you a bit of a, of a sleuth, of a sleuth trying to figure out what does it take to fit in here and, and belong? And, and so I just got kind of curious about it. How do you become part of the in crowd? What does it mean to be part of the in crowd? And um, and I think being an outsider kind of gives you that curiosity to some degree. I also was an assistant professor where I ended up working first with a, an amazing uh, graduate student who later became a fellow fellow uh, fellow colleague, Greg Walton, and he had a very very strong interest in belonging. And together, we did some of the seminal research in this area that really inspired a lot of subsequent work. And uh, and so our collaboration was another key aspect. And then finally, I, I do think, as you point out, my, my experience going, becoming, going to college, going to graduate school, becoming an assistant professor, I, I think it is these, the, I, I felt a keen sense of not belonging for, for a long time. And those transitions where we're going from one role to a next or entering a 
environment of higher standards, it's very natural for all of us to wonder if we really belong. Mm-hmm. And that is a kind of psychological situation that's really interesting to me where you're not quite sure if you belong. You're not quite sure if you don't belong. We call that a kind of belonging uncertainty. And you're just kind of wavering mm-hmm. back and forth. And what that state of Greg and I call belonging uncertainty can do is to make you a bit vigilant. Like you're you're looking mm-hmm. around in your environment. Mm-hmm. Do I belong? Do I not? And little things can end up looming pretty large. In my own case, I remember, for example, the chair patting me on the back one day and asking me, how is your class going? And I thought, oh, he must have heard something terrible about it. I was just in this mode of <laughs> right, wondering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because there, there are, um, you know, from, from my, from let's say a clinical psychology lens, as you point out, there's the internal dialogue, there's the internal factors, whether it's like, um, negative self-talk, low self-worth, you know, so there's those factors. And then your work and, and fortunately, as I think, uh, clinical psychology has moved into embracing um, the situations more of social psychology. There, there are situations that can either foster that sense of belonging, um, regardless of what's going on internally, and there are other situations and environments which really don't, which is at the cornerstone of your work um, in mm-hmm. terms of what are the things that polarize and make people not feel like they belong, and what are the things that people need to feel that sense of belonging. I want to highlight a few of the points that you make um, at the beginning of the book to talk about this crisis of belonging uh, to set the stage here. In 2020, you write, 40% of each political party said that supporters of the opposing party were, quote, downright evil. In 2019, hate crimes reached a 10-year high in the U.S., And then one in five Americans suffer from chronic loneliness with teenagers and young adults at increasing risk, and particularly with COVID. And we know the impact that that's had, particularly on our younger um, teens and uh, young adults and our elderly. So this is something that's been happening for a while, but would you say has been getting worse and worse? Yes, it's long simmering, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it, it it had been it had been forecasted or understood for some time that our society is becoming more and more disconnected. Uh, Putnam, for instance, in Bowling Alone, wrote about how so many of our civic associations were were fraying. We were becoming a, a more isolated society, and he wrote that I think back in the mid to late nineties. Uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book about how we are, our, our trust in institutions is fraying and our connection with institutions are fraying, a, a sort of disruption, great disruption, I think is what he called it. Uh, and this was all before COVID. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, te- teen anxiety is skyrocketing mm-hmm. since uh, roughly, I think the Gene Twenge has some data suggesting it really corresponds pretty well with the advent of the iPhone in 2006, that when our lives became more digital and more performative online, that really hit teens pretty hard. Now, rather than just having to deal with social posturing and social status in the lunchroom and in school, you now you're dealing with it 24-7 online. Mm-hmm. And she, she has some <clears throat> evidence that social media contributed 
contributed to the rise in teen anxiety and increasing sense among them of isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, isolation in the sense not of having few friends, isolation in the sense of feeling that there's no one here who accept, accepts me for my full self. And uh, I think that's, that's a real problem. And it's a constellation of things now that like a perfect storm of factors that are aggravating the situation. It's hard to say what's a cause and what's a consequence. Polarization for sure. Increasing segregation between the political tribes, both geographically and socially. The fact that I think it's about 75% of whites have no black friends. Uh, you know, we're racially isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our society is very individualistic too. It's very individualistic too. And then meanwhile, I think we have as an individualistic society, we have a kind of erroneous theory about what makes us happy. We think it's status and fame and esteem, but it turns out connections are often their own reward. And so we end up making these, what are called effective forecasting errors, these decisions where we think they'll make us happy, but they end up making us unhappy, such as being on our phone. It turns out that being on our phone, yeah, we we like to do it, but it actually undermines the quality of our conversations. Liz Dunn has some nice research showing that you just put your phone away, you have better conversations, you feel more mm-hmm. connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we try to live far away from others in some cases, in these, you know, some people live in gated communities. These things don't, do, don't on average, of course, there's individual variability, but they're not what give people meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, what gives people meaning and happiness is being connected to causes larger than themselves. And often those are other people, other communities, other purposes that uh, mm-hmm. link us in common towards towards shared goals. So I, and I, I would put yeah, yeah. Thing. And and what's fascinating about that is, as you outline and tell story after story after story, these. The, the, the groups that many feel are harmful, the, uh, whether it's a hate group or, or other groups that we don't feel are aligned with um, you know, doing good actually, and, and harming others, as you point out, much of that affiliation is very much connected to the experience of belonging and the overwhelming need to belong and the research that supports what cre- what creates the factors by which someone would seek a group to fulfill that need. Mm, I really appreciate your saying that. It occurs to me as you're talking, one of the things that the book tries to do is to just make this very simple point, but easy to forget point that bad behavior does not necessarily reflect something bad or defective inside of the person. Mm-hmm. We think that hate, extremism, reflects some corresponding evil essence inside of people. And I don't want to say that's never the case, of course, of course, but I think a lot, as you're saying, one of the things that leads people down these paths is the quest for belonging. And hate groups are incredibly well organized to exploit that need. Many of the members who join these groups are, they, they don't begin by subscribing to the poisonous ideology, though some, some do. Uh, instead, and I tell a few stories about this, they're drawn by the possibility of being somebody who matters, part of a group. Mm-hmm. The C.P. Ellis, the, the, whose story is just really moving and contemporary mm-hmm. today, back in the 70s, he joined, joined the KKK, became the Grand Wizard, not because he 
really subscribed to their ideology, eventually disowned it, but because he felt like, oh, this little guy suddenly has a family, and he had been disconnected for much of his life. He didn't have a strong connection with his family, and uh, didn't have a strong connection with America. He, you know, was dealing with a lot of economic economic hardship as well. So I think you're right. It's a lot of, and we we've done some research with teenagers too, showing that. A lot of times they act out, they engage in reckless behavior or antisocial mm-hmm. behavior because they want to fit in. They want mm-hmm. to fit in. And I tell a few stories about that, even including with my own son who granted me permission to, to tell his story. <laughs> but it, it's often those kinds of questions about, do I belong? What are the pathways to belong that lead people down the wrong path? And that's why it's such an important mm-hmm. need for us as schools, parents, and workplaces to, to nurture in constructive ways. And we human beings are so complex. Again, the this interplay of our in, in, internal dynamics at, at play with external dynamics and listening to a recent podcast you were on um, with the American Psychological Association, the study that you talked about where you were giving... Uh, Looking at Democrats and Republicans to see, and you and you were you were you were giving them um, information about a um, a point of view which is very consistent with each party, and seeing you know if they subscribe to those views that are consistent with their party, and you got one finding, and then you did basically kind of you mixed it up right, and you told them you gave them the opposite point of views and told them that their party was actually subscribing to this opposite point of view and what do they believe? And people went against the belief to join the party, even though that belief was against the party's belief. Right? Did I get that right? Yes, it was party over policy. When it comes to choosing policy, people go with their party rather than with their policy. In that study, in that study, the, the point of that study is to show that party cues are a powerful determinant of our political mm-hmm. rules. And mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Yeah. We so much want to belong to our political tribe. We'll tend to find some way to rationalize it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rationalize doing so. So in the book, there are, I mean, there are a host of um, wonderful recommendations, which we'll hit towards mm-hmm. the end of this conversation. Two main two main ideas that you talk about from the outset. One is situation crafting, and the other is, which leads to wise interventions. And I, I find that, I mean, those two things really stuck with me as mm. as I was thinking about today and going through life and, you know, looking around at work and just being, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been in the book. So I've been thinking about looking, I was just looking at people and tell us, tell us about, tell everyone, what what is situation crafting and how does that lead or connect to a wise intervention? Mm. Situation crafting is the process by which we change situations for the better. For the better, everyone. For the better. That's key. For the, be- for the better, for everyone. Yes. yes. Better, kind of leaving that up to the individual to, to some degree, but it's a verb. It's a verb. So situation craft means that your focus is no longer on changing the individual or even yourself so much as changing the situations that you're inhabiting or the situations that you're creating for other people. So that that is situation crafting. I 
came up with that as a verb just to just, just to help people focus their attention more on changing the situation rather than changing individuals. So that that, that was the idea, and it, it it's inspired by social psychology, which overall emphasizes just how important social situations are. It's not so. It's not just what's inside of us, our personality, or character, or ability that drives our behavior. It's it's the context. What is this circumstance I'm in, and and how am I seeing it? And so much of the research suggests that the situation matters a lot. I think of Carol Dweck's early yep. research looking at uh, children who and how they respond to adversity. To make a long story short, she finds that even with kids with the same level of ability, if you give them an adversity, some of them just disengage and become dis- demoralized, whereas others, they're like, wow, this is an opportunity to learn. And, and, and they pony up to the, to, the, to, the, to the task even more. Mm-hmm. And it's the same objective situation at adversity, but they're construing it very, very differently. One group sees it as an opportunity to learn, the other sees it as a referendum on their abilities. And that leads to a whole constellation of reactions. So this is just to make the point that situation crafting is both about changing the objective situation we're in for the better, but also about changing people's perceptions of the situation. Because a lot of times a situation isn't just surrounded by a physical barrier. It's not just the bar room or the school room or the classroom, the physical situation. It is barriers of perception that lock us into the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um... I was struck by the story of the um, the black professional who was asked who was going to leave the department because of not feeling like belonging. That that that, that well, something was not right. Just did not feel like she belonged. Yeah. And yeah. the person who was guiding um, said, "Well, you know, take a. Why don't you write down every day what what happens, what people say to you, and." right? Astonishing. She came back with a blank piece of paper. No one had said anything to her for maybe two weeks. Mm-hmm. And from there, there was an opportunity for situation crafting. Yes? Absolutely. That's a story from Mary Rowe, the organizational professor at MIT Sloan. And she describes as an ombudsman how a black employee came to her and said, I'm going to quit. And as you say, you tell the story well. She came back and Basically, the problem wasn't with what was happening. The problem in her situation was what was with what was not happening. There was a basic lack of congeniality. People didn't show appreciation. They didn't say thank you. They didn't. They didn't ask her about her day. Mm-hmm. And and it's the absence. So I, you're raising a really good point here that so much of situations isn't just about what's there. Mm-hmm. which is often easy to see. What's much harder to see is what's not there and what right. could be there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of social psychology is about adding to the situation just that thing that is absent, but that could make all the difference. So in her case, um, this didn't happen in her case, but some things that could have made a big difference are getting what we call, for example, wise criticism, uh, where in a manager or a teacher, an educator gives people critical feedback, but in a way that is very, very affirming. They say, I'm giving you this critical feedback because I have high standards and I believe in your potential. In one study we found giving that feedback in that way increased the percentage of African-Americans revising their essay from 17, they're revising their work from 17% to 
71%. Mm. That's an action that adds to the situation something that's missing. And what's missing is that sense that people appreciate me here and they mm -hmm. believe in me. And oftentimes that's just the message that is needed. It's just what's missing and it's just what's needed. So how does situation crafting and wise intervention come together? Mm. So a wise intervention is a term to describe, and it's, it, it was used by Greg Walton to describe a body of practices of late in social psychology that by changing people's perceptions of situation change their behavior in positive ways. And wise interventions are just, you could look at them as tools for situation crafting. Tools for situation crafting. Wise criticism is one why a wise intervention where you're giving feedback and you're emphasizing high standards and a belief in the person's potential. That's an example of a wise intervention. Another example of a wise intervention is what Claude Steele has called values affirmations, wherein you ask people or you yourself reflect on your core values, the things that you really, really care about and that you might even die for. In these moments of stress, if you do that, that's been shown to have a lot of positive effects under some circumstances. That's another values affirmations is another wise intervention. And there's a, a, a suite of them, including perspective getting, deep canvassing, value alignment interventions, freezing, so many. I use situation crafting to describe the verb, the verb of uh, crafting situations in a fluid way. Wise interventions are the tool, are some of the tools mm -hmm. we can use to do that. And mm -hmm. I, I almost consider it, you know, I've been thinking a lot about politeness, politeness, you know, the politeness protocols. What's so interesting about politeness is that every culture has a protocol for politeness. It's a tool. Hmm. for conveying respect, saying, please, thank you. Every culture does. And Goffman, the famous so sociologist, said, yeah, politeness, it's one of those few remaining rituals that we practice day to day to honor the sacred. And with politeness, what we're honoring is the sacredness hmm. of another person's self. Hmm. Politeness is a tool to craft situations in ways that mm -hmm. keep them harmonious. Likewise, wise interventions are a tool, tools that we can use to keep our encounters on course, catalyzing both growth and, and connectedness. And they won't work all the time, just like politeness won't work all the time, but it can get you pretty far. Mm -hmm. You had a, a recent tweet I saw, which struck me after reading your book as a wise intervention, which you'll, you'll, I'll, I'm going to read it and you'll let me know if I'm <laughs> where I am with this. So the tweet said, as the school year starts with all its cheers and tears, remember three core messages of belonging we can convey to our students. You are seen, you have potential, you are not alone. Hmm. Is that a wise intervention? Well, we're doing wise interventions all the time. Mm -hmm. You can't escape it. You can just make your interventions. I don't really like the term interventions, to be honest. I'm trying to think of another term, but mm. you cannot escape social life without intervening on it. Your mere presence is an intervention. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think 
one of the wondrous things of, about social life is that we're influencing things in ways we don't understand all the time. And much of the time as educators, in this case, I think we're having an influence both for good and for ill in ways we can't even fathom. I remember one person told me how uh, she was a teacher that she bumped into a fellow, a, a student of hers, I think two decades later, and the student revealed to the teacher that uh, that that she was going to kill herself. That the student was going to kill herself one day uh, uh, when she was taking the, the <clears throat> when she was in school with the teacher. Uh, but that, there there was one day where she went to class and she was looking through the journal she kept for the class and the teacher wrote a, a nice note like, oh, these are really interesting thoughts that you have and I look forward to reading more. It was something very simple. And the student revealed to the teacher years later that, you know, I was going to kill myself that day, but your note wow. kept me in the game. Wow. And the teacher had no clue. The teacher had no clue until that was told her. And I, I, I do feel like... I, I don't know, Dr. Dan, if you feel this in, in your own life, that the the things that that influence you are often the things that you really, you know, that other people may not necessarily know about. And one of the best things we can do is just tell people that, you know, you really affected me in this positive way. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, that 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 tweet is an example of, of the ways and some of the powerful messages that we can send to one another, basically the most powerful wise, so-called wise interventions are the ones where we convey in word or deed those, one of those three messages. You are seen, mm-hmm. you, uh, you matter, you matter, mm-hmm. and, um, and you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those three, three messages are really core. How we convey them can vary quite a bit. Well, and it speaks to an intervention, unless we well, we'll come up with another word at some point. But um, intervening on that epidemic of loneliness and isolation, which has been happening and uh, increased through the pandemic, you know. So, I know it's a tough question to put some numbers on this, but if you look mm-hmm. at the pie of um, mental health, um, mental health, distress, um, violence, um, aggression, all, all of the, all of the stuff that we're trying to combat in our society and help people with what percent of the pie do you think we can pin mm. only, you know, loneliness and isolation to these things. And conversely, you know, if we can take steps away from them and towards belonging, the, you have some, you know, amazing yeah. results about what happens. Yeah. Well, Pete Buttigieg called our time, our era, a crisis of belonging. And I co-opted that term to refer to the fact that we live in an era where so many of the problems seem to emanate from thwarted or defeated belonging, ranging from hate groups and extremism to polarization, to underachievement in school, to, uh, to racism and sexism, xenophobia, all of these are kind of rooted to some degree, not entirely in a crisis of belonging, wherein people are just trying to find some source of meaning and connection somewhere, some anchor. So I, I think that a lot of the problems in our society today have that as a common source. And it's one of the reasons that I think social psychology has so much to offer 
mm-hmm. is that it, it, it provides strategies. It, it gives hope. But I know hope is not a strategy. So there's strategies too. And so much of the research in social psychology of late and over the errors and what I'm trying to do is just give away to curate the wonderful research that folks have been doing over the over the years. When I was a student, I felt like, man, why did I not learn about all these ways we can make a positive impact in our day-to-day lives when I was in high school mm-hmm. or middle school? And right. I just felt like, man, this stuff needs to be out there in the world. So the kinds of interventions that we're talking about, wherein you convey these messages, uh, they all help to convey these messages that, that, uh, that you're seen, you have potential, and you're not alone. And there's so many ways in which we can do that in our day-to-day lives. And I do feel like, of course, we need to be working on this problem of changing systems, social mm-hmm. systems and our laws and institutions for the better. But we shouldn't forget at the same time that there's much we can do in the, even the smallest corners of our social life, smallest mm-hmm. pockets to, to create connection and help to catalyze each other's potential. And, you know, so many examples of, of this uh, are are provided by by the research. Just to take one or two, we have found that giving kids the opportunity in adolescence to reflect on their core values, to write about what's most important to them uh, in brief writing of prompts, just mm-hmm. asking them to do that over the course of one year in the transition to middle school increases their GPA, increases their sense of belonging, and years and years later is associated with a 20% jump in the percentage of students going on to college. That little act Mm -hmm. of storing up your sense of self during a key transition can have big effects and long-lasting effects. Now, of course, what I want to really emphasize here with all wise interventions is that they are not magic bullets. They don't work all the time, just like that's social life. Nothing will work all Mm -hmm. the time. But under the right circumstances, these little things that we do day to day can have a big difference. And what are those right circumstances? The, those right circumstances are when there's pent up potential. There's something in someone that's not coming out. And in mm-hmm. these studies that we do, it's often the marginalized or the negative stereotyped who benefit the most. They're, they're, they are mm-hmm. craving for that message that I have potential. I'm seen. I'm not alone. And you provide that in some credible way and bang, mm-hmm. what they know comes out. What they can do surfaces. And I have just been so amazed, not so much over the years by any wise intervention. I've been really amazed by people because what all this research suggests is that there's so much potential in people that that meets the eye. And even after people have experienced long, long bouts in history of adversity and discrimination, there's still something Mm -hmm. left. And those kids Mm -hmm. in these studies, you know, Mm -hmm. they've gone through the school system for for 10 years, probably facing a lot of discrimination and still Mm -hmm. clear up some question mm-hmm. about belonging and there they go yeah. and they can yeah. they can they can do much better yeah by being seen being heard mm-hmm. uh and knowing they matter and they're not alone and these these messages which again everyone are um there's several different ideas in the book about how to go about um doing these in a variety of different ways this it's the same message in your home with your kids and your families mm-hmm. it's the same message for your students of all ages it's the same message at your place of work in your community in the mm-hmm. supermarket right this is it these are universal human truths yes yes it's the same every 
small corner of social life, every interaction you can be creating belonging and making the situation at least a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's the big lesson. And I really like how you, how you, how you put that. It, it just matters everywhere. Even when you're out about, out and about in the at the supermarket, treating people with respect is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. It will often surprise us what it can accomplish. I want to throw in a little um, a comic, a, a little comment, like something funny that I just thought of from one of our kids that uh, brought home to us about a year ago, um, which I, I guess she has taken um, from social psychology is uh, she was talking about relationships and her friends and relationships. And we asked her, oh, is so-and-so dating so-and-so or are they going out or whatever terminology we think is being used these days, which is always wrong. And she said, no, dad, uh, they're in a situationship. Like, oh, (laughs) I didn't know there was such a thing. So apparently uh, there are, um, so parents of teenagers and young adults, there is a thing called, situationships which define and i think explain probably quite well why some relationships happen in certain situations under certain parameters wow that is very useful yeah. <laughs> because I, I often feel like you have a relationship with people just by dint of being in the same situation with them they can be complete strangers you're walking down the street you suddenly do something with some some other group of people suddenly you have a situationship Mm-hmm. You're connected by virtue of the fact you're in the same social situation. I know your your daughter's using it for a different, in a different, yeah. a slightly, in a somewhat different way. But I think that term captures the fact that many of our relationships are about working together in the same situation to make the best of it. Yeah, yeah. And and your work, you you give. Um you know, shout out and tribute to some of the pioneers in the field, um, very respectfully. And I know that, uh, Lewin was a, you know, someone who has really, um, impact your work. Um, and also Bowlby, I want to just, uh, give a, uh, a statement that you made that Bowlby, the one of the pioneers of attachment research, um, says healthy development depends on connection. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. Right, and we know this from early on, but we kind of keep it in the attachment literature to um, you know early childhood and infancy and the mother-child bond, as if it just stays there and it doesn't stay there. Like for healthy development, we need connection and we need continued connection. Mm. So true. I think you put that so well, Doctor Dan. The thrust of research at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century in psychology is that the need to belong doesn't end in early childhood. It persists from cradle to the grave. And a lot of the things we see out and about that we find find objectionable in our social lives, especially especially today, are symptoms of a defeated need to belong, as as we've talked about. And uh, I would say that that's one of the, the big insights of, of psychology is that, no, this doesn't end. It's not just about ages zero to two, but throughout the life, we need to have that feeling of there are people in this together. I love that quote by Marina Keegan, a Yale student who passed away tragically. She was a journalist, but in one of her last posts, she wrote, this is her last post, it's beautiful. She's, she says, there needs to be a word for something that is the opposite 
of loneliness. And it's not quite love. It's not quite community, she writes. It's a sense that we're all in this together, that there's an abundance of people. And she's grasping for a term. I think that term is belonging. Mm -hmm. And we all need it. From the, we all need it throughout throughout our lives, and that's that's one of the big lessons of of psychology of, of the past f- few decades. And Lewin, Kurt Lewin, was a pioneer of social psychology. He was a German refugee from World War II, so I make a brief plug for him. He created the field of social psychology that we know today. And what he was interested in was social change. And he mm-hmm. showed through a series of brilliant studies that you could create situations that are transformative. And just to give one little example, he would, for instance, create these little groups of, say, kids or boys, boy, after, after school boys clubs, and change the way in which the adult led the group. In some cases, for some groups, the the leader took a democratic style, helping the kids to identify their goals and make plans and work together. In other groups, the leader was more laissez-faire, hands-off, or authoritarian, command and control. Long story short, the, the leader transformed the climate of the, of the group and the behavior of the kids. The kids in the authoritarian groups and the laissez-faire groups, to simplify, often became passive and disengaged, or they acted out and scapegoated. They became mean and nasty with each other. By contrast, the kids with the Democrat and with the Democratic leader, the only difference was the Democratic leader, they were totally different kids. They worked together, they took delight and affirmation in each other's company. Their work was judged to be of superior quality. And I see that work by Kurt Lewin as an example of situation crafting. He's creating situations through leadership, which we sorely need today. Mm-hmm. And uh, in these studies, he's creating these little visions of social paradise, I think, mm-hmm. that we could achieve, mm-hmm. showing what's possible by changing the situations. It's not that the kids were bad or good in one group. It's that the situation brought out the better angels of their selves or not. So if we... Uh, you. You may have answered this already through this conversation, and I'm trying to package this up for us. What would be, so for parents listening who are also teachers and also family members and work in the community, you know, everyone with their multiple hats, Mm. if you could, what's the bullet point shortlist for creating that blueprint of belonging? Sure. Let's, let's have... There's many answers to that question. I'm going to give the top three, maybe four. Sounds good. Okay. First is what's called perspective getting. This is a term that Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder came up with to refer to the act of just asking people rather than trying to take their perspective, ask people for their perspective. And that includes your kids. One of the things I tried very hard as a parent to do was just to listen to my kids rather than condemn or criticize or lecture, listen to them. And what that does is two things. You get to know them better. And then what's most important, when they enter those teenage years, if they have a problem, they come to you. Mm-hmm. You're trusted. You're, you're available and you're trusted. So perspective get. Don't try to pour in information or imagine people's perspective. Try to get it. Mm-hmm. Ask good questions. That's one. Perspective getting. And we don't do enough of that, the research suggests. 
Number two, out and about in our communities, be polite. As we talked about, please, thank you. Saying these things with sincerity. Every time we're in a social situation where there's something to be grateful for, which is almost everyone, convey that gratitude through being polite. The research suggests that in in in-group, out-group interactions, we're not polite enough. Even in police encounters, this goes really awry, of course, as we know. Uh, Research by Jennifer Eberhardt shows that uh, officers, when they're interacting with black drivers, are much less polite than when they're interacting with white drivers. And that sends a really negative message about their legitimacy. So Mm -hmm. be polite, as in that example of Mary Rowe. That includes these actions in which we convey our appreciation of another human being. So be polite. Number three is affirm. Affirm. I think the lesson of a lot of research is that most of us have good values. Mm. Where they go awry is that we get a little confused about how to enact those values and the messiness of everyday situations. So values affirmations in which we ask people and ourselves to reflect on our most core values can be very beneficial. And there's an abundance of research now showing that that small act of just taking a moment to reflect on what defines me, what are my most important values, Mm -hmm. my relationships, compassion, giving something back to the world, my community, really helps people. It helps people deal with stress, get by in difficult situations. It even opens people up to positions that they may have found objectionable. They become more open-minded and less likely to vilify people who disagree. So affirm. Mm -hmm. And then the final strategy I put on this top four list is fight the fundamental attribution error. Mm. Fundamental attribution error is a one bit of academic jargon I included in the book, but fundamental attribution error, if I can popularize this idea, I'll be, I would have done my job. Yes. It refers to the tendency we all have, especially in individualistic cultures to think that what really matters in driving people's behavior is their internal essences, their character, Mm -hmm. their ability. And while those do matter, what often matters much more is the circumstances that they're in or the circumstances that they're perceiving themselves to be in. Situation. Situation, the situation. And if we could really just kind of stop that reflexive tendency to judge and Mm -hmm. think that what's driving someone, especially their objectionable behavior, something inside of them, and take a step back and ask ourselves, well, what in the situation, if I were them, might be driving them to do this? Or even prospective get and ask them, wait, what's going on? This doesn't seem like you. Mm-hmm. That is a very um, uh, one of the best things we can do for belonging because we we are far far mm-hmm. too confident in our readings of other people, and we don't give enough credence or credit mm. to the situations they may be in, which often are more complex and and much more um, uh, much more intricate than we can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, everyone, you just heard it. The Blueprint for Cultivating Belonging. I will repeat, summarize. We have perspective getting, ask questions and listen. Be polite. Affirm, which includes reflecting on your own values, what's important to you. And finally, fighting that nasty fundamental attribution error. We all do things 
due to a multitude of factors, whether perceived or real, and everything does not lie within the individual. It is often created, cultivated, and impacted by the environment and the situation. And if we can pause and consider that is going on rather than just attributing a person's behavior to something about them, particularly a stereotype, many that we have, we are taking a step towards cultivating belonging. Okay, well, Jeff, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. Ooh. And well, then, think- oh, wait, wait, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> well, we got, I got to get it, make it more sophisticated. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, or, and or those you love. That's mm. uh, such a great question. I would choose this, this story. Uh, when I was a kid, I was 17 years old, and I got into a car accident. I got in a car. I was okay, but the car was totaled. I felt so ashamed. My father was an avid driver, and he had taught me to drive. and And he he educated me on on being a good defensive driver. And I knew it would disappoint him so much that I got in this accident. And I was God. I was so nervous. And I was so scared of him. I mean, he was the kind of guy that you really don't want to disappoint. Um, anyway, uh, I remember when I told him, he didn't really say much. We went and we went to visit the car and the wreckage and he looked it over. He said nothing. And I was just feeling this pit in my stomach of being just a real disappointment. I, I It was a moment where I felt just awful about myself. And I felt like I let him down, especially, uh, we returned home and my dad, who didn't really say much, he wasn't really a kind of, uh, affectionate individual, I would say. Uh, but then, you know, at this moment when I most needed it, he said something that was very affirming. He, he, as I stepped in the door, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, the Chinese have a saying, every mistake is a treasure. Hmm. And metal is replaceable. You are not. Wow. And wow. I, I don't know. There's so many things in that. One is just kind of saying that message of the growth mindset that we can instill in our kids. That message of you matter. You're you're hmm. you are precious to me. That's another message we can send to 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 everyone, to our kids, the people that we love. Um, and what I also think that that captures is. A lot of times those messages are most needed at the times when we're least deserving of them or at least mm. perceive ourselves as being. So that's the, that's the answer I would give. That is a great story. That is a great story. And as a parent, man, to go there in some of the circumstances we find ourselves in as parents with behavior that either we are shocked by, upset by, scared by, name it and to come with that sort of presence um yeah. that's powerful that's powerful i think yeah. to come with that because so much of the time we're we're so focused on giving people what they deserve in these roles and we forget mm-hmm. what they need and a lot yeah. of people 
with yeah. the, they're most needy when they're least deserving and least yeah. needy when they're most deserving is yeah. a real tr yeah. tricky part of being a parent. Dr. Professor Jeff Cohen, thank you so much for this conversation and for your work, everyone. I'm holding this beautiful book with an umbrella on it. Um, definitely check it out. It distills science and theory in a speakable, user-friendly, ingestible narrative that you can take. And as you can tell by just this conversation with Jeff, this is a real person um, out there giving away this information for us all to create a place where more people feel like they belong and that they matter and they are seen. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Dan. It was just a wonderful conversation. Please let everyone know of all the places they can get your book, where they can also find all of the work you and your colleagues are doing. So the book is available at all the usual online shopping spots, uh, also in the bookstores. And if you'd like, I have a bunch of resources at my website, including these affirmation activities that I mentioned, and also articles. And my website is just my name, Jeffrey L. Cohen, that's with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-L-C-O-H-E-N.com, JeffreyLCohen.com. And a lot of the resources and information about the book are up there on that website. Thanks so much. Good luck on all your speaking. I know you're all over the place promoting this book, and we're grateful that you took a stop with us. Best of luck. Thank you, Dr. Dan. I'm grateful as well. Many thanks. All right, everyone. Let's go out there and go in there, and let's focus on helping people feel, feel seen, heard, and matter, and help them belong. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this episode with everyone who will benefit, which is everyone. We so appreciate your five-star reviews, being a part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.